Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 36, The Queen of Cities. So to start off, a huge thanks to our newest patrons, Gennady Samokovarov, Vasko Yosenov, and Robert Nilsson. With their donations, we finally crossed a, lo- a milestone for me to do a more serious website refresh. Now, at the moment, I'm just like two and a half weeks away from going to Vietnam to backpack for about a month, and I might also be out, uh, out traveling and doing remote work for about another month off after that, so... That website refresh is probably going to have to hold off till late spring, early summer. But in the meantime, I'd really love to hear from you guys. Uh, What kind of features do you want for the website? Um, I'm updating it much more regularly now. You can see there's a lot of uh, maps and things for the last couple episodes. But what new, what what do you want from it? You know, what, what sounds cool? And also on the point of milestones and rewards on Patreon. Now, even if you can't or don't want to pledge on Patreon, I'd also really love to know what you'd like from the podcast. You know, uh, I want to set new milestones because I just hit uh, the the most the the kind of furthest one I've created. So yeah, what else would you like from me? Uh, more frequent episodes? Would you like uh, longer episodes? Would you like other? I'm still going to try to do a mini series in a couple months. All kinds of stuff. So let me know your ideas. All right, <clears throat> to the episode. Last time, we left off with Kaulian signing a peace treaty with the Byzantine Emperor Alexios III Angelos in 1202. Now you'll recall that this was in part because Bulgaria's allies, the Cumans, had just suffered a serious defeat at the hands of the Kievan Rus and Hungary under King Emmerich was kind of stirring off in the distance, right? So peace just come to Byzantium and Bulgaria and there's kind of ominous rumblings in the distance. Well, I don't know, maybe stirring is the wrong word for Hungary because uh, invading is probably the more appropriate term. Because in the spring of 1202, while Kaoyan was still busy dealing with the Byzantines, the Hungarians retook Belgrade and other cities along the Danube. But Emmerich wasn't content with this reconquest. He clearly saw the new Bulgarian state as a pretty serious threat. You know, relations with Byzantium were much more predictable for the Hungarians, right? The Byzantines were very unlikely to to do much expansion into Hungarian territory. They'd had some conflicts in the past. But in any case, Bulgaria was a worse neighbor than Byzantium. So the Hungarians didn't want Bulgaria there. As such, uh, Emmerich, King Emmerich, claimed uh, that the new dynasty of Kaoyan was illegitimate and installed a ruler in those newly conquered Danubian cities, and that ruler called himself the King of Bulgaria. Now, we don't really know anything about this person, but for reasons that have a lot to do with politics, uh, yeah, we just never heard about much about them. So, <clears throat> to go into the whole backstory here, what's going on in general... We need to actually take a huge step back and explain events that have been occurring in the West for the past few years. Now, full disclosure, this step back is going to take more or less the rest of the episode, but it's super important. So we came all the way up to 1202, but we need to uh, go back in time. So you'll remember that Saladin took Jerusalem 
and destroyed the Crusader states back in the 1180s, right? Okay. Then the Third Crusade took some cities in the region, but not Jerusalem, 10 years previously in the uh, 1190s. So now we're at 1202, Jerusalem is still under Muslim control. So it should come as no surprise that Pope Innocent III has been calling for another crusade since he became Pope in 1198. But around 1199-1200, this period, a few French nobles and soldiers, with contingents from other areas of Europe as well, did manage to gather an army together. This time, instead of moving through the Balkans and Anatolia, something you'll recall that was you know, kind of dangerous and problematic for crusader armies in the past, this crusade wanted to take a more direct route. Well, indirect direct. They wanted to negotiate transport to Egypt. The idea was to begin by invading that powerful Muslim state. You know, Egypt was still very wealthy, a very important Mediterranean state, but had long since been dominated by uh, the Islamic world. <clears throat> so the idea was to take that and then move from there to the Holy Land. The only two states that could possibly gather a fleet large enough and strong enough for this enterprise, though, were Venice and Genoa. Venice ultimately agreed to the whole, the kind of idea of the whole endeavor in 1201. But the problem was, putting together a large enough fleet to transport a crusader army was going to take about a year and a ton of money. But Venice agreed. So everything was going great when the Crusaders assembled in Venice in 1202, which you'll recall is a year after Venice agreed, so it was time to, they had time to build the fleet. But there was one problem. The Crusader army that assembled was about a third of the expected size. So that meant the Venetians had built about three times the ships necessary to transport them. The thing is, the Venetians were business people. They didn't care much that the Crusaders couldn't manage to get the soldiers together. They needed to be paid. Because, you know, the, the amount of time and effort, you know, it was the materials going to the ship, the time, the fact that all the people working on the ships weren't doing the regular trade that Venice was doing. I mean, just the opportunity costs, to use in economic terms, for building this, uh, this fleet were enormous. And so Venice couldn't just say, oops, oh well, that's fine, don't worry, you can pay a third of the price for a third of the fleet. Uh-uh, not going to work for Venice. So the question was, how are the Crusaders going to pay Venice so they can continue on to Egypt? Well, using the army to take uh, many important trading cities along the Adriatic coast was a possibility. So this was done. Venice agreed, okay, you, you know, do, do a bit of invading for us and uh, we'll forgive some of the debts. And this culminated in the siege of Zara which is modern Zadar in Croatia. Now, I have to point out again, Zadar is a stunningly beautiful city, uh, one of the coolest places on the Adriatic coast I've ever visited. They've got this sea organ. Just look it up. I love Zadar. Go visit it. Super cool. Anyways, so they took Zara. The city had been under Hungarian control since 1186, and the Crusader army retook it for Venice. Problem was that... If you'll recall, the Venetians, the Crusaders, and the Hungarians are all what? They're all Catholic. So, in the classic tradition of the previous three Crusades, this one involves attacking co-religionists. You know, the first thing the crusade against the, you know, bad Muslims is going to do is 
lay siege to a Catholic city, which is a, in, under the control of another Catholic power. Now, how did this happen? Because Pope Innocent forbade the attack on Zara. The Pope said, do not do this. But they did it anyways. Mostly because the Pope's condemnation was hidden from the Crusader soldiers, right? The leaders of the Crusade knew they needed to take Zara in order to pay for transportation. And if the Pope doesn't want them to, we'll just keep that on the down low. King Emmerich of Hungary actually managed to convince the Pope to excommunicate the entire city of Venice for doing this. But whatever, Zara was taken anyways. Then once Zara was taken, the Crusaders decided to spend the winter there. It made sense. Innocent III ordered the Crusaders and to, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, stop all this nonsense and get to Jerusalem. Just cut it out, you guys. But once again, the letter on this information was hidden from the soldiers for fear of how they might react. So ultimately, Venetian pressure, or maybe it was blackmail, is a little uncertain, convinced Pope Innocent to withdraw his excommunication of the city of Venice. But even if the excommunication is withdrawn, the Hungarians are pretty pissed, the Pope is angry, and the crusade is not off to a super productive start. But the plot thickens. Because before the army left Venice, before they even took Zara, one of the leaders of the crusade left to go visit his cousin in southern Germany. There, he made contact with a man named Alexios IV Angelos. Now, again, you'll recall the current Byzantine emperor is Alexios III Angelos. Now, this new Alexios is the brother-in-law of the cousin of the son of the recently deposed Isaac III, who is still blinded and hanging out in a dungeon in Constantinople. So, it should go without saying that Alexius IV, the new one, he wants his uncle, Alexius III, and current emperor, dead. Right? So, internal Angelos family drama, but uh, this, this kind of exile guy hanging out in southern Germany wants his uncle in Constantinople dead, and one of the crusader leaders just made contact with him. So, to accomplish his mission, this exiled prince of Constantinople is ready to promise anything, like so many exiles. Specifically, he offers to pay all of the money owed to the Venetians, plus 200,000 silver marks. Now, bear in mind, the initial debt owed to Venice for the ships was only 85,000 silver marks. Plus, he offers 10,000 Byzantine soldiers for the Crusader army, a promise to maintain 500 Byzantine knights in the Holy Land for the protection of the Crusader states, and he promises to reunite the Eastern and Western churches under the Pope's leadership. So, this is something we've seen several times in uh, Byzantine history, right? Whoever is outside of power, in exile, they will promise the world plus uh, the kitchen sink if it gets them on the throne. So, this new Alexios does just that. So, there's a bit of dissension amongst the Crusaders about whether or not they should accept this. But, after all, they still remember the massacre of the Latins in Constantinople, right? It's not like there's a lot of uh, uh, good blood, you know, good feelings between the Byzantine world and the Catholic Western European world. So the Crusaders say, 
ah, that sounds fine. You know what? Uh, this guy's going to pay off the re- our remaining debt towards Venice. We're going to get a bunch of Byzantine soldiers. Uh, it's going to reunite the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Sounds cool. We'll do it. So the Crusaders get on the Venetian ships and they head to Constantinople in 1203. The Crusaders land on the Asian shore across from Constantinople, and shortly after their landing, they mount an amphibious assault across the Bosphorus at Galata, just north of the city itself. The Byzantine army fled south of the Galata Tower, which held one end of the massive chain which prevented the Venetian navy from entering the Golden Horn, a waterway separating Constantinople from Galata to the north. You should check out maps on the website to get an idea of the visuals of all this. So the Crusaders then proceed to lay siege to the tower, Galata Tower, and they take it. That means that the chain that was down was, you know, the chain uh, blocking the Venetian fleet is gone, and now the Venetian ships can freely enter the Golden Horn. This doesn't mean Constantinople falls, but it means Constantinople is under serious threat. That chain prevents enemy navies from getting close to the shorter seawalls facing the Golden Horn, and as long as it's there... You know, Byzantium can withstand a siege pretty well because the Byzantines can still fish in the Golden Horn. They've got a continuous source of not a ton of food, but food. Another problem is that the city at this point has a very light garrison, only about 20,000 soldiers. Because, well, Byzantium has amazing defenses, the, the city, and when it's seriously threatened, it's usually possible to gather soldiers from the provincial theme armies and get them to the capital. But this attack by sea really took Constantinople by surprise. So it's not well defended and the, the sea chain is down. It's not looking good. Now, I'll make a point that at some point during the siege, the Crusaders receive a letter from Tsar Kaulian who offers military aid in exchange for them crowning him king and recognizing his right to rule the territories he controls, the Crusaders ignore him. So that's where these kind of crusades uh, interact with Bulgaria. Bulgaria says like, hey, we'll help you out. We don't really like the Byzantines either. And the Crusaders are like, shut up, we're busy. So back to the siege. Byzantine forces outside the city are defeated, right? So some Byzantine forces leave, They're defeated, and the Golden Horn is breached. Now it's time for the siege of the city to begin proper. The Crusaders' land forces are held off by the walls and by the Varangian Guard, right? Again, you'll remember Constantinople has these epic, triple-layered land walls that are the basically most powerful city defenses on the planet at this time. And the Varangian Guard are these insanely powerful Viking warriors, I recently posted an article about them on the Facebook page, so you can go check that out for more information on them. So the Venetians are attacking the seawalls with their ships at the same time, and they actually managed to capture a section of that wall. But the Varangians move to counterattack the Venetians, and the Venetians decide to retreat back to their ships, and as they go, they set fire to part of the city. That fire destroyed nearly two square kilometers of the city, leaving about 20,000 of about half a million total Constantinopolitans homeless. So there's half a million people in the city total. Now 20,000 of them, their homes are in ashes. Alexius III, the emperor, decides to go on the attack at this point. So he leads an army uh, about twice the size of the Crusader land forces outside the walls to mount an attack on them. But then for really unknown reasons, 
he decides to turn away and return to the walls. He just, he's out there, he's ready to take on the Crusaders, and he changes his mind. And it's really at this moment that the will of Alexius III fails. Because he didn't stay inside the walls for long, he actually fled the city and went to Thrace. There, he contacted Kalyan about an alliance to retake his throne, but was refused. Kalyan could hardly take him seriously, and it was some nice proof of loyalty to the Pope, who, as you'll recall, Kalyan's still trying to kind of court for recognition. Now, the population of Constantinople, not really knowing what else to do, decide to drag poor blind Isaac II out of prison and proclaim him emperor, in spite of the fact that he's blind and has been in prison for a couple of years. But of course, Isaac can't really do that much. It's not like he's going to be an effective ruler. So he quickly proclaims his son, Alexius IV, as his co-emperor. This is the same Alexius who was with the Crusaders who gave them the idea to attack Constantinople. But you can imagine, relations between the locals and the invaders at this point are not great. Uh, Riots are breaking out as Alexius and Isaac tried to kind of co-rule, and within a few months, by the end of the year, Alexius IV is incredibly unpopular. Oh, but it gets worse, because the Crusaders also were not too thrilled with Alexius IV. Because in spite of all they've done, he could not fulfill his promises to the Crusaders. Remember, he promised them tons of money and soldiers and the reunification of the churches, all this kinds of stuff. But he couldn't deliver. So, By January 1204, Alexius IV doesn't have any friends anywhere. And at this point, a nobleman also named Alexios, really enough already, I don't want to have to do an episode called Alexios, 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 but the Byzantines don't care. Anyways, this new Alexios orchestrates a coup and overthrows Alexius IV, throws him and his father into prison where they both die. Possibly murdered, maybe not, but within days of going into prison, they're all dead. So now, Constantinople is in full control of Alexios V. Now, he's ready to fight the Crusader invaders once again. So the Crusaders kind of won. You know, they got their person in control. uh, But then that person, you know, Alexios IV, didn't really do what he was supposed to do. The Crusaders are still hanging out. The population's not happy that they're there. On and on and on. But now, the Crusaders uh, have an enemy in charge. So... Alexius attempts a surprise attack on the Latin camp, the Crusader camp, but it fails. The Crusaders now lay siege to the city once again. And now it takes a few months, but eventually the Crusaders do take Constantinople. Alexius V also runs away to Thrace, but he's captured, dragged back to Constantinople, and publicly executed. Um, Now, bear in mind at this point, Alexius V is now the fifth of the last six Byzantine emperors to be brutally murdered. So it's not looking good for them. Uh, In fact, only Alexius III, who's still in exile in uh, Adrianople, had managed to escape this fate, so he's still alive. But um, yeah, it's not a good time to be a Byzantine emperor. But anyways, the siege ends. The Crusader army wins, and they enter the city. So it happened, right? I mean... Over the last uh, 36 episodes, we've had how many times when the Bulgarians tried to take Constantinople, they got ready, and someone just did it. So what follows is a brutal sacking. 
one of the great tragedies of Western history. For three days, the Crusaders stole or destroyed countless priceless works of art throughout the city. They raped and they looted everything. The city's great library was destroyed. Churches and monasteries were looted, as well as the homes of countless everyday citizens. Remember that Alexius IV promised the Crusaders um, the 200,000 rather silver marks? Well, to put this in perspective, it's estimated that they stole 900,000 silver marks from the city and divided it between themselves. That's more than 10 times what the Crusaders owed the Venetians, what they couldn't pay before. The American historian Speros Vironis describes the sack of Constantinople as follows. The Latin soldiery subjected the greatest city in Europe to an indescribable sack. For three days they murdered, raped, and looted, and destroyed on a scale which even the ancient Vandals and Goths would have found unbelievable. Constantinople had become a veritable museum of ancient and Byzantine art, an emporium of such incredible wealth that the Latins were astounded at the riches they found. Though the Venetians had an appreciation for the art which they discovered, they themselves, semi-Byzantines, had saved much of it, the French and others destroyed indiscriminately, halting for refreshing themselves with wine, the violation of nuns, and murder of Orthodox clerics. The Crusaders vented their hatred for the Greeks most spectacularly in the desecration of the greatest church in Christendom. They smashed the silver iconostasis, the icons, and the holy books of Hagia Sophia. And seated upon the patriarchal throne, a whore who sang coarse songs as they drank wine from the church's holy vessels. The estrangement of East and West, which had proceeded over the centuries, culminated in the horrible massacre that accompanied the conquest of Constantinople. The Greeks were convinced that even the Turks, had they taken the city, would not have been so cruel as the Latin Christians. The defeat of Byzantium, already in a state of decline, accelerated political degeneration so that the Byzantines eventually became an easy prey for the Turks. The Fourth Crusade and the Crusading movement generally thus resulted, ultimately, in the victory of Islam, a result which was the exact opposite of its original intention. End quote. Okay, so that, that, that kind of hints at things to come, uh, but still, you, you get an idea for the historical importance of this event and how brutal it was. The historian Stephen Runciman, who you'll recall I used extensively in covering the First Bulgarian Empire, put it more simply. He said, quote, There was never a greater crime against humanity than the Fourth Crusade. End quote. Now, I, I think you could argue that there have been much worse things then, since, but still, this is a horrendous act of history. Now, there's no denying that the massacre of the Latins years before had been terrible, but this was on another scale entirely. And once again, the East and the West took to brutalizing one another. In the aftermath of these events, Pope Innocent had this to say, quote, How indeed will the Church of the Greeks, no matter how severely she is beset with afflictions and persecutions, return into ecclesiastical union, and to a devotion to the apostolic see. When she has seen in the Latins only an example of perdition and the works of darkness, 
so that she now, and with reason, detests the Latins more than dogs? As for those who were supposed to be seeking the ends of Jesus Christ, not their own ends, who made up their swords, which they were supposed to use against the pagans, drip with Christian blood. They have spared neither religion, nor age, nor sex. They have committed incest, adultery, and fornication before the eyes of men. They have exposed both matrons and virgins, even those dedicated to God, to the sordid lust of boys. Not satisfied with breaking open the imperial treasury and plundering the goods of princes and lesser men, they also laid their hands on the treasures of churches. What is more serious, on their very possessions. They have even ripped silver plates from the altars and have hacked them to pieces amongst themselves. They violated the holy places and have carried off crosses and relics. End quote. So, the Pope himself was even horrified at this event. And in fact, the papacy formally apologized for these events in the early 2000s. But in any case, in the year 1204, the queen of cities, Constantinople, lay in ruins, having been ravaged by her western cousins. But even before taking the city, the crusader forces, and I've already started doing it in the quotes and everything, but we're going to call them Latins now and call them the Latin Empire and on and on because that's what the literature does and they're not really crusading anymore at this point. <clears throat> so the Latins had agreed upon a treaty known as Partitio Terrarum Imperii Romanae, or the Partition of the Lands of the Empire of Romania, or the Byzantine Empire. So this treaty divided the lands of Byzantium. Now here you're going to definitely want to check out the map on the website to see what I mean, but I'll describe it as best I can. First, Baldwin of Flanders became the first emperor of the newly established Latin Empire of Constantinople. The new Latin Empire controlled a quarter of Byzantine territory and a quarter of Constantinople. Venice got three-eighths of all Byzantine territory and three-eighths of Constantinople. The remaining three-eighths of the empire was handed out amongst other leaders of the crusade, who were generally then um, sort of vassals of the new Latin Empire. So the Latin Empire directly controlled a quarter, and the remaining three-quarters was divided between vassal states and the Venetians. For example, Boniface I, Marquess of Montferrat, the guy who arranged the original deal with Alexius IV, he became king of Thessalonica. Other leaders became rulers of the Duchy of Athens, the Principality of Archaea, which is basically the Peloponnesus. Then the Venetians founded the Duchy of the Archipelago on a group of Greek islands in the center of the Aegean Sea, and on and on. But the Byzantine Empire wasn't done for. Out of its ashes rose the Empire of Trebizond on the coast of the Black Sea in Anatolia, the Empire of Nicaea, based on a stretch of that city, based in that city kind of stretching across Anatolia, and the despotate of Epirus on the western coast of Greece. All three of these states were dominated by former Byzantine officials. So while Constantinople was being besieged and taken from 1203 to 1204, other things in the world were also happening. King Emmerich's younger brother, Andrew, often hungry, led a rebellion against him. Now, these two had quarreled before, leading Emmerich to name Andrew Duke of Croatia. But this was a lot more serious. Because at one point, they had their armies fighting, full-on civil war. They met, and 
Emmerich ventured unarmed into Anders' camp. A contemporaneous account claims that he said, quote, Now I shall see who will dare to raise a hand and shed the blood of the royal lineage. End quote. And with that, Andrew was taken prisoner. So it's kind of weird. Nobody really stopped Emmerich for some reason from just walking up into his brother's camp unarmed and taking his brother prisoner. But he did. Within a year, though, Andrew's supporters managed to get him out of prison and Hungary kind of returned to civil war. So while all this was happening, Kaolyan had invaded Serbia along with his Kuman allies and took Niche, Belgrade, and all the territory he had just lost to the Hungarians. By this point, he was also asking the Pope to finally resolve the conflict between him and Hungary. Now, the Pope had a solution, and it involved crowning Kaolyan. But the papal legate sent to do this was arrested while passing through Hungary, which is not exactly surprising as the Hungarians did not approve of this resolution to the whole issue. Still, the legate was ultimately freed and Kaolyan was crowned by the Pope. His patriarch Basil was also given papal authority. Now, Kaolyan's title in Latin was Rex, which means king and not emperor. But he referred to himself as Tsar, which in Bulgarian is kind of both rolled into one. There isn't really a distinction in Bulgarian. So, honestly, Kaolyan's title is a bit ambiguous, but we'll call him and his successors Tsars, that's what they called themselves, and we're going to still refer to this as the Second Byzantine, or sorry, the Second Bulgarian Empire. As for Hungary, Emmerich himself died in 1204, and his son Ladislaus succeeded him. But within a year, Ladislaus's uncle Andrew forced him and his mother to flee the country, and he died shortly afterwards, and Andrew became King Andrew II of Hungary. Now, I'll also briefly mention to wrap up the Fourth Crusade that a few soldiers from the crusade did eventually reach the Holy Land, but had no real measurable impact there. So the crusade did kind of sort of continue, but not really. So to wrap up, this entire episode really only covered about two years, but these were very important two years. So it required a whole episode to get through them. So next time, we're going to kind of look at the aftermath of the world-changing Fourth Crusade, right? So we just saw that Constantinople had fallen, that, you know, the entire Balkan Eastern Mediterranean world has been just completely turned on its head. And so we need to understand what does this mean for Bulgaria? What's the relationship between Bulgaria and these new Latin states going to be? What about the successor states of the Byzantines? What will they do? Will the West launch another crusade? Because Jerusalem, did we all forget about Jerusalem? And what is this new king of Hungary, Andrew, going to do? The, so the events of the next episode are going to kind of show us how much has changed and where all these are going to take us. So in the meantime, this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey, with research help from Stanimir Bogdanov, and the theme music, as always, is written and performed by Teddy Raven. Like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, listen on SoundCloud, you know all the good stuff. Check out the Bulgaria Now podcast and get in touch if you want anything. If you still let me know what kind of stuff you want from Patreon. So until the next time, uspek or good luck. <laughs>